The next topic and series of abstracts, posters, and presentations focused on colorectal cancer, and clearly the most anticipated data set was presented by Dr. Amory de Gramont, providing the third and final update of the Mosaic Adjuvant Trial evaluating Fulfox. I met with Dr. Leonard Saltz to review this paper and others, and he began our conversation by commenting on the Mosaic data set. The study has been presented as a positive study, has established a standard of care, and I didn't see anything at the meeting that would make me change my assessment of that. I still believe that Fulfox is the appropriate default position for a patient with stage 3 colon cancer. I thought it was very interesting and a little disappointing that for the good risk stage 2 patients, there was no benefit. And I thought that Dr. Degramont's assessment that Fulfox should not be offered to good risk stage 2 patients was accurate and responsible. The higher risk stage 2 patients still have the potential to benefit from Fulfox, and we've seen from a number of different risk nomograms that high risk stage 2 patients may in fact be a worse population in terms of prognosis than good risk stage 3. And so patients with stage 3 disease clearly garner some benefit from Fulfox. The overall survival advantage was sort of right at the border of statistical significance. I'm not really hung up on that. Dr. Degramont said he regarded this as a positive finding, and I agree. Patients with significant risk factors in stage 2 disease, those patients that have obstructing disease, perforated disease, perivascular, perineural invasion, poorly differentiated histology, those are people that I still feel are appropriate to offer Fulfox to. Patients with good risk stage 2 disease, at this point, I believe that the discussion is no treatment versus fluoropyrimidine only, and that fluoropyrimidine only could be either 5-Effulucavorin or capecitabine. Now, there were a bunch of things that came out at this meeting about number of lymph nodes involved. And when you talk about, quote, good risk or higher risk stage 2 patients, are you including those with less than 12 nodes? Yeah, I consider a patient that has fewer than 12 nodes reported, whether that's sampled, taken, visualized, or otherwise, I consider that a poor risk factor. So if I don't feel that there's an adequate number of lymph nodes to give me high confidence that this is a node-negative patient, I err towards aggressive treatment. I can't prove that that's the right thing to do in all cases, but that's the discussion I have with patients, that this raises my anxiety level enough to make me feel that the potential toxicity of oxaliplatin is worth considering. I do think it's important to note that the degree of neurotoxicity that has been seen with longer follow-up and with more detailed collection of these data is higher than had been initially reported. And that parallels mine and most other oncologists' experience in practice, that the neurotoxicity of oxaliplatin is not something to be taken lightly. And it clearly is something that has the potential for long-term problems for the patient and something that we need to look at very carefully. We don't have studies to tell us how much oxaliplatin is enough. The Mosaic study was done for half a year for the important scientific reason that that's about how much time it takes the Earth to go halfway around the sun. And we don't know if we were to use a shorter period of exposure whether we would get the same benefit. There are now finally some studies starting in Europe to address that question. If we look at the NSABP trial, they used a total of nine doses of oxaliplatin in the CO7 trial, and those data look 
more similar than they do different to the mosaic. And so that suggests to me that we might be able to get away with less. What I find in my practice is if the patient is having a relatively easy time with the neurotoxicity, I certainly go ahead with all 12 doses. If as we're getting deeper into therapy, neurotoxicity is lasting the full time between treatments or escalating to the point of functional impairment where people are starting to have any degree of fine motor skill impairment, difficulty picking up pieces of paper or coins, difficulty buttoning a shirt, things of that nature, I will think very seriously about holding oxaliplatin over the last few doses and completing the planned half year of therapy with just the 5-FU and leucovorin. It's important to bear in mind the difference between nothing and 5-FU leucovorin is more substantial than the difference between 5-FU leucovorin versus 5-FU leucovorin oxaliplatin. So oxaliplatin, again, is a step forward. It's real, but it's a modest step forward. And it's important for us to maintain an equipoise in terms of not overstating the degree to which it has moved the bar. One more question about Mosaic very briefly, and that is the discussion by Dr. Alberto Sobrero about it because as part of that it was interesting that he actually came to our poster the day before and you've been part of this project for several years now where we've been you know doing surveys of patients and he you know he came down there and really was you know he contacted me ahead of time we wanted to find out exactly what we did etc and he ended up bringing that up in the discussion in the mosaic paper and i'm curious what your thoughts were about what he said well i happen to think that his discussion which covered a number of papers was one of the best and most eloquent discussions at the whole ASCO meeting. I thought he had a really nice overview and a really good way of crystallizing the situation. What the study that you led showed was that patients' attitudes are perhaps more open-minded to accepting toxicity than doctors might have thought, and that patients faced with the risk of cancer are willing to take a fair amount of therapy, even for modest potential increase in the chance for cure. And those are important in terms of keeping the lines of communication open between doctors and patients and discussing whether or not these therapies are appropriate for the individual or not. What Dr. Sobrero also pointed out is that there are a number of factors that have been really not controlled for in a lot of the studies that we have done that may influence outcome for patients. And this gets a little bit ahead of ourselves into the ACCENT database that Dr. Sargent and O'Connell talked about. And they showed us that there are a number of different factors in terms of the amount of time that a patient takes to progress to metastatic disease and the stage that they initially present at before they develop metastatic disease that will have significant impact on the overall prognosis of the patient once they get to metastatic disease, but also that because these factors affect outcome in metastatic disease, that overall survival interpretation is going to be more difficult because it is influenced by the impact that metastatic therapy can have. I want to actually go through those two accent presentations, one by Dan Sargent and the other by Mike O'Connell. And You know, honestly, as a non-statistician, non-researcher, I found these two presentations a little hard to understand, and I talked to both of the presenters. But I'm curious just sort of globally from the perspective of somebody in practice, what were the points that you think are important to know about? Yeah, I think to both their credits, they worked very hard to take exceedingly complicated data 
and try to distill it down for take-home messages for those of us that take care of patients and what should we learn from this. I think that one piece of data that I found perhaps a bit surprising but very important is that when we look at patients who had stage 2 disease, were followed out and then became metastatic versus patients who had stage 3 disease were followed out and became metastatic versus patients who initially presented with stage 4. Starting the clock from the time they have known stage 4 disease, the people that had earlier stage disease do better. That's a very important, significant prognostic factor. And maybe a little bit surprising. I was surprised. And in addition... And this one was perhaps a little bit less surprising, but the degree of impact on it was a bit surprising to me, that the longer you went before relapsing, the better you did with your relapse disease. So that if you have a person that had stage 2 disease and a year later presents with stage 4, and another person that had stage 2 disease and four years later presents with stage 4 disease, Taking those two people from the moment they start with stage four, the person that had the longer disease-free interval is going to do better with their metastatic disease. And what Dr. Sobrero showed so graphically is that these factors have an interaction that is as large or larger than the interactions from many of the drug therapies that we have used. And because these factors haven't been controlled for in great detail in the past, it raises some questions about how well we can interpret some of the trials that we've done going forward. It tells us also, I think this were more important for clinical trialists than for practicing oncologists. Absolutely. That was my take too. But it's important because a practicing oncologist is going to need to interpret the clinical trials because we try to be data-driven in our decisions for our patients. And understanding both the strengths and the limitations of the data help us to decide how far to let the data push the situation, how far to let individual doctor preferences and individual patient preferences guide decisions. And so in that respect, I think that these were important presentations. And I think, you know, that was seemed to be the most striking finding from Mike O'Connell's presentation. I want to ask you about what Dan Sargent presented, but first, can you kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about where the data came from, what the Accent Project is really looking at? What Accent did is combine, I believe in this analysis, it was nine adjuvant clinical trials that were focused on fluoropyrimidine-based therapy. And by doing a meta-analysis, getting a hold of the original trial data and putting it into the computer base so that you can combine these studies in a statistically valid way, you get an enormous amount of power to look for various differences. And that was the basis for the presentations that were done thus far. What is going to happen with Accent now is that the trials that have been done with arenotecan and oxaliplatin in the adjuvant setting are also going to be factored in. And that's going to lead to a even more of a powerful tool to look at some of the factors that may be helpful in guiding therapy. Because what may come out of this over time, you know, one of the buzzwords that we're all focusing on is the idea of individualized medicine. And can we by various techniques, figure out who is most likely to benefit, who is most likely to be harmed, who should, who should not get therapy. 
And these data sets may be powerful enough to start letting us identify certain subsets of patients that are or are not going to benefit from the addition of oxaliplatin. Maybe subsets of people that would benefit from the addition of arenotecan, even though for the overall population, arenotecan doesn't add anything in the adjuvant setting. So I think that these large, powerful meta-analyses are going to have the ability to provide a lot of information that may guide our future thinking. We've seen a lot of interest in the issue of time course of recurrence in breast cancer. Now there's a whole issue of delayed recurrences in ER-positive tumors, et cetera. But Dan Sargent focused on the time course of recurrence with colon cancer, and it was pretty interesting in terms of what he found. Can you kind of summarize the bottom line of what came out of that? And again, remember that the presentation by Dr. Sargent was focusing on patients that were treated in the fluoropyrimidine-only era. And one of the questions that we'll have to explore is whether or not this is going to carry out over time. What he showed and has presented data before, but this was strongly reinforcing of it, is firstly that three-year disease-free survival is an important surrogate endpoint for overall outcome. And so it allows us to take a look early at our clinical trials and on the basis of that endpoint, determine whether or not a therapy is going to be long-term beneficial. Now, the FDA has concluded that three-year disease-free survival is a valid endpoint in and of itself, not just a surrogate for survival. That's a judgment call that we could discuss. But at the very least, what it tells us is if we see an advantage in three-year disease-free survival, that there's an exceedingly high likelihood that that's representative of long-term overall survival advantage. And that gives us, I think, a lot of comfort with some of the therapeutic decisions that we're making, especially because all future adjuvant studies are going to be judged on this three-year disease-free survival endpoint rather than having to wait the multiple years that it would take for survival data to mature. The other point that was shown was that the vast majority of recurrences happen within that first three-year interval. Whether or not that's still going to be true in the Fulfox or oxaliplatin era, time will tell. But it has potential implications for how we should be following the patients. It justifies, for example, the NCCN and ASCO guidelines that recommend annual CT scanning for the first three years and don't really comment much after that. A lot of people in practice tend to follow people out longer with scans. Whether or not that's truly beneficial to the patient or not is debatable. And these data would suggest that most of the bang for the buck is going to be in that early follow-up period. One of the things that I found interesting about Dr. Sargent's presentation was that there was a low degree of what appeared to be cancer recurrence very far out, out to even 10 years. And what's not clear to me, and we've discussed this, and they're going back to their database to try to sort this out, is whether or not that represents true late presentation of metastatic disease, which I'm going to bet it does not, or the development of a new primary. See, one of the things we learned back in 2005 when we were starting to analyze the PETAC-3 data was that there is an important difference between relapse-free survival and disease-free survival. And in the definitions that are commonly used, relapse-free survival refers to the event being relapse of the original cancer. Disease-free survival can be either a relapse of the original cancer or the development of a new primary. 
And I think it's far more likely that what we are seeing that far out is development of new primary, because it's certainly outside my experience in practice to see 1% or even a fraction of 1% developing cancers seven, eight, nine years out. The next paper I want to ask you about is Abstract 4019 by Dr. Meyerhart and CLGB and your group. Mm -hmm. And this kind of has an interesting history sort of personally because we've been doing these think tanks every summer. You've always participated. This year, unfortunately, we had ours a couple weeks ago. You had another commitment. But you probably remember that last year, Charlie Fuchs actually showed us these data and said, you can't talk about it, it's embargo. But we were all like stunned looking at the correlation between diet Mm -hmm. and cancer recurrence. Of course, previously, your group has reported the issue of exercise. And we talked a lot about this at the think tank. And in fact, I actually was kind of pushing people about the concept of why can't we just go ahead and put together a prospective study. And I know that Rich Goldberg told me that they were going to discuss that at the CALGB meeting, which I guess just happened last weekend. This is some very interesting information. And Charlie Fuchs and Jeff Meyerhart really did the heavy lifting on this and deserve the credit. We did a trial through CALGB asking the question of whether adding arenotecan to bolus 5-FU-leucovorin using the IFL schedule would improve the outcome for patients with stage 3 as opposed to the standard 5-FU leucovorin. Remember, this was done before oxaliplatin was available and before the mosaic study was known. And that, as reported, was a negative study. The addition of arenotecan did not improve either disease-free or overall survival and did add toxicity. And so the conclusion has been, bad idea, don't do it. A negative trial can still provide an awful lot of important information. And Charlie Fuchs and Jeff Meyerhart have shown just how true that can be. What they did is using a validated instrument, and I believe this was about a 37-page questionnaire, that was given to patients on the study six months and 12 months after starting therapy. So we're dealing now with the people that haven't had rapid recurrence, but that's the vast majority of folks, and asked them everything about what they were eating, what they were taking, what they were doing, how much activity they got, what vitamin supplements were they taking, were they taking any alternative health care treatments, and so on. And so the fact that the study was negative in terms of treatment interaction makes it an even stronger database of patients to look for other influences, such as diet, exercise, supplements, and so on. And so the first piece of information that came out was looking at exercise that the population of patients who had the exercise equivalent of six hours of walking per week versus the most sedentary group had a dramatic 50% risk reduction. And that was really quite an interesting surprise to me. I would have thought that perhaps exercise and diet would influence the development of cancer. But what we're talking about here is an influence on the relapse rate and therefore presumably an influence on the body's immune ability to destroy micrometastatic disease. The diet study divided people up into different diets with one group being what we call the prudent diet, which was a diet that was high in fruits and vegetables, high in fish, high in whole grains, and low in red meat, low in animal fat, and low in refined grains. And when you look at the people that were most compliant with the prudent diet versus the people with sort of the worst fast food type diets, very high fat, lots of red meat, lots of refined grains, and so on, 
again, what we saw was an extremely striking risk reduction in terms of the risk of the cancer coming back. Now, recognize these are people that had stage 3 disease. Nobody ever dies of stage 3 disease. They die of stage 4 disease that we weren't sharp enough to recognize and we thought it was stage 3. In other words, the cancer doesn't come back. If it becomes a clinical problem for the patient, there always was metastatic, albeit microscopic, cancer in this patient. And the issue of adjuvant chemotherapy is whether or not we're able to destroy that microscopic metastatic disease. So here what we're learning is that diet and exercise can have a meaningful impact on the ability of a patient to deal with micrometastatic disease and destroy it. Whether it's in conjunction with the chemotherapy or not, it's hard to say, but the fact is that we would presume that a similar number of exercising and non-exercising, good diet and poor diet people have microscopic metastatic disease. And yet different numbers go on to develop it clinically on the basis of their exercise and their diet. And to me, that is absolutely fascinating. Now, recognize this is an observational study. It's not, as you alluded to before, a prospective study. And it would be very nice if we are able to develop prospective data. Those are very, very difficult studies to do. When you think about the design, you've got to figure out how to do it in an ethical fashion and how to do it in a way that people are able to comply. Because, of course, the interesting question is, do people that live a healthier lifestyle and then get cancer anyway do better? Or can you do an intervention? When a person gets cancer, can you change their lifestyle and improve their chance of remaining cancer-free? And we don't know the answer to that question right now. You know, it's interesting. Ironically enough, the morning of the think tank, I found myself in the gym next to Rich Goldberg, one of the Stairmasters. And, you know, he was the co-chair, has been for the last few years. And we were talking about this because Charlie Fuchs was going to present these data And I was telling him about the WIND study, which, of course, all you all are aware of, which was a prospective randomized study in breast cancer of a dietary intervention, which is fairly simple. You know, it's reduced dietary fat intake. Memorial was one of the centers that put patients on that that showed a substantial reduction in relapse rate. And I was saying, you know, would it make sense to do something like this in colon cancer? In any event, we talked about this. There were some thoughts about, well, maybe we should approach this differently because it doesn't have the same kind of side effects. I mean, the side effects of diet and exercise is you have less heart disease. And then I just got an email just a couple of hours ago from Rich saying it was discussed at the CALGB meeting last week, and I know you weren't able to attend that, but that, in fact, that they have decided for Charlie and Jeff Meyerhart to go forward and put together a concept for a prospective study. And you know, we also talked about how do you get things like this funded nowadays, and you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I just think talking about it, at least it's you know, kind of a different approach. I think we, it seems like maybe are a little bit of a lull in terms of new ideas in the adjuvant setting, and you know, maybe this is something worth looking at. Well, firstly, sadly, I agree with you. We are having a bit of a lull in terms of how to move forward in the adjuvant setting. I guess it could lead to a discussion of the abstract that wasn't the PACE trial, that was originally going to be discussed at ASCO and for reasons that are probably beyond the scope of this discussion was not presented, much to my disappointment. What's been said publicly about that abstract 
And it's actually due to be presented in Barcelona, I think this weekend, actually. What's been on the Amgen website is the study found at a pre-planned analysis at 231 events. And could you just clarify the design? This was a randomized study in first-line metastatic colon cancer that looked at patients treated with either Fulfox and Bevacizumab or Fulfiri and Bevacizumab. So there were 200 Fulfiri Bev and 800 Fulfox Bev patients. Randomized, split down the middle, plus minus penitumumab. So it's basically chemotherapy plus bevacizumab plus minus penitumumab. Penitumumab is the variable in the study. And this was hoping to build on the kind of data that our group presented at ASCO in 2005 and is now in press and JCO, looking at cetuximab and bevacizumab in the salvage setting and looking promising at that point. What was found in that study is that at this pre-planned early analysis at 231 events out of 1,000 patients, that there was a statistically significant detriment in progression-free survival to the group that received penitumumab. This led the Data Safety Monitoring Committee to ask for an unplanned overall survival analysis at that point, and that too showed a statistically significant detriment to the group that received penitumumab. This is very sobering, very concerning, and very, very unexpected. It certainly throws a wrench into plans to look at penitumumab in the adjuvant setting, which had been on the docket for NSABP and other groups, and makes us a little bit concerned about, not a little bit, a lot concerned about the idea of combined EGFR and anti-VEGF therapy in general. Safety evaluations were looked at in ongoing studies with cetuximab and bevacizumab, and nobody found reason to halt those studies, which is reassuring. But we don't understand this. And here again is an example of one of those unwelcome and unexpected bits of negative data that we need to be thinking about in terms of what we have and have not accomplished with these drugs. The next two papers I wanted to talk about were actually papers that you and Jim Cassidy presented. You initially presented, this is from the so-called 66 study, you had both initially presented this at the GI Symposium in January, and I interviewed both of you in depth about these. So our listeners are very familiar with the details and the nuances, et cetera. But I just wanted to ask whether there was anything new or different in these two presentations beyond what was presented in January. Well, the new information, also a bit sobering, is that we looked at overall survival data for the first time because those were not mature at the January presentation. And when we look at the addition of bevacizumab to frontline oxaliplatin-based therapy, we see that although it trends towards improved survival, the difference was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.077. And here again, not what we expected to see. This study was a positive trial in that the primary pre-specified endpoint was progression-free survival. Progression-free survival was modestly improved by the addition of bevacizumab, albeit not nearly as much as we would have hoped. The absolute difference was 1.4 months improvement as compared to the 4.4-month improvement that was seen with Hurwitz's study of the IFL regimen. And the response rate was no different in the chemotherapy alone versus chemotherapy and bevacizumab in this study. So it's a technically positive but sobering study 
that tells us that the incremental benefit of adding bevacizumab to frontline oxaliplatin therapy is not what we had hoped it would be. It's a step, but a more modest step than we wanted it to be. I think that it's just a cautionary note that while bevacizumab is a real drug and a real step forward, and I still regard it as part of routine frontline management of colorectal cancer, that it isn't bringing us to the promised land, and it isn't moving us beyond the levels that we had wanted to move beyond. Most importantly, we thought that if we took Rich Goldberg's N9741 study and added it to Herb Hurwitz's study, that we'd be able to take the advantage of Fulfox over a bolus 5-FU arenotecan regimen, add bevacizumab to it, and move us into a year or better median progression-free survival. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing progression-free survivals in the nine-and-a-half-month range, and that's not what we had hoped to see. I guess we should also comment the other part of the study, which Jim Cassidy was focused on, was comparing Zelox to Fulfox. And with all the caveats about using capecitabine, particularly in a U.S.-based population, at least it was reassuring that the efficacy data seemed to be about the same. Was that your take? Yes. One last comment I would make about the bevacizumab comparison first, and then I'll get to the portion that Jim presented. I think an important observation that we've made on the study is that physicians discontinued the bevacizumab at a median of about six months on the study, even though progression was eight to nine months out from initiation of therapy. And our best understanding of this would appear to be that when toxicity developed, presumably from chemotherapy and most likely from oxaliplatin, the physicians perceived that they were supposed to take the patient off study. There is a line on page 87 of this over 200-page document that says that they have the option to discontinue any one drug and continue the others, and I think that that was probably just missed in the busy world of clinical investigation. And that, I think, is an important caveat in interpreting these data, and I think that had bevacizumab been continued until progression, it is highly likely that we would have seen a more dramatic improvement in the outcome for the bevacizumab-treated population. Therefore, I would not want anyone to misconstrue this study as a negative trial or a reason not to use bevacizumab, and I would caution against any early discontinuation of bevacizumab up to progression. As far as the capecitabine issue, as Rich Goldberg so eloquently said in his discussion afterwards where there were several thousand patients on several trials comparing capecitabine oxaliplatin versus Fulfox, enough already. We got it. It's roughly equivalent. I think people can make their own decisions on the toxicity issues and the compliance issues. I don't think it is a slam dunk that one regimen is easier than the other, better than the other. I think that there are clear advantages and disadvantages to a therapy that has some of its components oral. It's important to remember that capecitabine oxaliplatin is not an all-oral regimen. People still have to come and see their doctor for intravenous therapies. Speaking of continuation of bevacizumab, I was curious about your take on Axel Grothy's poster 4036 from the Bright study looking at this issue, and I guess this really also ties into the newly launched IBET study. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question and one that I really wanted to see studied right from the get-go when bevacizumab was first approved and 
for various reasons that didn't happen, and that's very disappointing because I fear we may never get those data. It's a very different question to say, should we continue bevacizumab after progression than it is to say we should continue bevacizumab until progression. So let's first clarify that point. We need to continue bevacizumab when we started it until there is treatment failure. Once there's treatment failure through a bevacizumab-containing regimen, to me it's an investigational question whether or not bevacizumab has a role. It certainly has the potential for side effects, and it certainly has the potential for significant financial consequences. The Bright Registry looked at a number of issues regarding patients that were treated with bevacizumab, and what Dr. Grothe presented was an analysis that looked at whether or not they received any therapy after failure of first line, and whether they received therapy with continuation of bevacizumab. And these were patients who were basically being treated in a community-based setting and just being followed prospectively. Community-based setting, followed prospectively, totally non-randomized, total physician discretion in terms of what chemotherapies and what chemotherapy decisions would be made. By the way, virtually all of them, if they did continue bevacizumab in second line, continued at the 5 milligram per kilogram level, did not escalate to 10 milligram per kilogram as was done in the ECOG 3200 study. Now, remember the ECOG 3200 study addressed only patients that did not have bevacizumab previously and got it only in the second line. So in the outcome of this registry that Dr. Grothe presented, the group that continued bevacizumab with second-line therapy did better than the group that got chemotherapy only, and they did better than the group that got no chemotherapy. If these were randomized data, it would be a slam dunk and no question about it. These are pretty big differences there. They're rather dramatic differences, and the question that comes up is, are these compelling enough to drive standard practice? The question was discussed at the Guidelines Committee of NCCN two weeks ago, and the answer was almost unequivocally no, that the NCCN guidelines would not accept this as a support for continuation of bevacizumab beyond progression. Dr. Grothe pointed out on his poster that the IBET study or the SWOG 0600 study has recently been activated, was not activated then, has now recently been activated. And this is a randomized study that is designed to address this very question. Patients who have progressed on a capecitabine oxaliplatin or Fulfox regimen with frontline bevacizumab would be randomized to receive their second-line chemotherapy, which would be fulfiri and cetuximab, plus minus bevacizumab to try to isolate out the question of continuation of Bev. It's an important study. I fear it's going to be a very difficult one to get done. Given that the drug is commercially available, given that third-party payers appear not to have the sophistication to sort out in what realm of colon cancer treatment the drug is being used, doctors are feeling pretty comfortable to make their own decisions as to whether they want to continue the bevacizumab or not. And I think some doctors feel that they want to, and some doctors feel that they don't. I'm worried that there won't be enough who feel that we don't know the answer and would encourage their patients to go on the trial. Yeah, there was a lot of sentiment in the think tank about that. But interestingly, the next day, we did a Meet the Professor session where we had 12 community-based oncologists and some faculty discussing cases. And one of the things we did was we talked about this study, which had just been open, I think, a couple of days before, 
And granted, the docs that work with us are, you know, probably, I think, maybe a little bit more interested in research. And these are docs who are participating in a lot of cooperative group studies for the community setting. They liked the Bright study. And I think a lot of the reason was they felt so frustrated with Herceptin and that we couldn't get the study done. And, I mean, I don't know if these 12 represent, you know, the whole— You mean they liked the Swago 600 study? Yes, they liked it. They wanted to get involved with it. They thought it was a great study, and they felt good about it. Well, it would delight me if I'm wrong. You know, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying it's going to be very challenging. And I really hope that as an oncology community, we're able to get it done because it's a correct question to ask. Well, also, it'd be interesting to try to figure out what's going on here, because, you know, if this really pans out, I mean, the numbers that they reported there was that in the group who didn't have any post-treatment progression, the median survival is, you know, 12 and a half or 13 months. In the group that got post-progression treatment, but without BEV, it was around 20 months. And in the group that got post-treatment with BEV, it was almost 32 months. Right. And again, the question is, to what degree is that a treatment factor? And to what degree is that a selection factor? Because well, remember- but I guess the issue would be maybe, because, you know, I used to hear from Dennis Slayman, you know, I, if the patient has responded well, that I'm more likely to continue the Herceptin. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is a selection mm-hmm. bias, but maybe there's a way to select who to continue. But that would be an interesting study question. And that's what, I assume that's what they're going to try to yeah. figure out in IBET. Right, right. But the point is that these confounding factors make the bright data hypothesis generating, but they don't settle the issue. It's not the same as seeing those numbers in randomized comparisons. And we could conjecture that a doctor might say, well, this person still looks really good, so I feel comfortable continuing the BEV and hitting them with more chemotherapy. This person has you know, fallen off the table performance status-wise, has a bowel or biliary obstruction. I'm not going to treat them any further. And this person, well, they don't look terrific, but they look okay to try some chemo, but I don't want to push my luck with this new drug that I don't know very much about. And so one could conjecture reasons why selection biases might favor the group that wound up getting the continuation of BEV. I also thought the model of using a prospective observational registry like that was interesting. This thing got started in 2004, and now as a result, in 2007, we've got a trial started because of it. I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Yes, the registry is interesting and useful, but we do have to be careful not to let such things replace randomized controlled studies and not to interpret them as randomized studies. I think it's unfortunate that we haven't accrued the study already. I think it was a very doable study in 2004, 2005. I think the comfort level with bevacizumab is such now that many people have already decided the question. Some have decided one way, some have decided the other, and that's unfortunate because it is a legitimate open question. Yeah, well, I have a lot of faith in the oncologists in practice, and I'm optimistic that this is going to get done, but we'll see. I think that'd be wonderful, and it would be a real credit to the practicing oncology community if we're able to accrue this study. Absolutely. I want to run through a bunch of other presentations and, you know, kind of briefly get your take on them. I want to start out with the CRYSTAL trial, which was abstract 4000. If you could talk basically about what they looked at and what they saw. Well, this was a study that was assessing the contribution of cetuximab to frontline chemotherapy. They chose to use Fulfiri as their control arm, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable choice. And the randomization was straightforward Fulfiri versus Fulfiri plus cetuximab. The announcement was made publicly a number of months ago that the study had met its pre-specified endpoint, and that is a true statement. 
The pre-specified endpoint was progression-free survival with a statistically significant difference, and in fact, that was seen. What's a little bit sobering to me is that that difference was a little bit less than one month. And what we saw on this is a significant amount of skin toxicity with approaching 19% grade 3 skin toxicity. And one of the things that I've become sensitive to over the last couple of years is just what a difficult toxicity this skin toxicity is for our patients to tolerate. I think we all had the reaction when we first started working with this drug and other EGFR inhibitors in the late 90s and the early part of this decade was, oh, it's just a skin rash. You know, that's so much better than having to deal with diarrhea or neutropenia or nausea or some of the other nasty things that our drugs have put patients through. Well, it's not just a little bit of a sort of kind of skin rash. It's a very severe skin rash. It's a debilitating rash to a lot of people. And as we first reported in 2001 and has been subsequently corroborated by virtually every EGFR study since, rash correlates with clinical activity. And we see that in the CRYSTAL trial as well. The people with grade 3 skin rash do better than the people with grade 2 who do better than the people with grade 0 or 1. So what that means is if you're going to benefit from cetuximab, for all practical purposes, you need to get a nasty skin rash. And whether or not patients are going to accept a skin rash in the early part of their therapy is, I think, a significant question. If this study existed in a vacuum and bevacizumab did not exist, then having a drug to add to chemotherapy that gave us a modest but significant improvement in progression-free survival, I think might have had more of an impact. The question is, relative to bevacizumab, which is going to be more acceptable to patients. I think we're seeing patients voting with their feet in terms of the ease with which we were able to accrue to the bevacizumab plus Volfox adjuvant question and the relative difficulty we're having accruing to the cetuximab plus Volfox adjuvant question. When people are feeling reasonably well, when they're in the early stages of metastatic disease or where they're in the post-surgical treatment of adjuvant or earlier stage disease, they want their lives back. They don't want to be wearing a mark on their face that they're sick. And they don't want to be reminded every time they look in the mirror that something's wrong. They don't want people looking at them funny at work, on the street, at school. And I think that that is going to limit the usefulness of these data. A related paper was 4035 the OPUS study, mm-hmm. randomized phase two, looking at cetuximab plus full FOX4 versus full FOX4 alone. What did they see? Well, that was a very preliminary report that showed that there was a modest response benefit to the group that got cetuximab and confirming what we've seen in some other trials, that cetuximab, which has about a 10% single agent response rate, does seem to be able to improve the response of chemotherapy. We'll need to wait and see whether other data are positive from that study. They didn't have progression-free or overall survival data. But now you've got to think about, okay, one of the other really insidious toxicities that we've subjected patients to is the neurotoxicity of oxaliplatin. If we're going to take a person and ask them to deal with the neurotoxicity of oxaliplatin and the skin toxicity of an EGFR inhibitor, that's a lot to ask people to go through. We really better have an awfully good reason to ask them to accept that. Now, one of the things that I'm hopeful about is that at AACR, there was some interesting data presented 
looking at ability to select those patients who are more likely to benefit from an EGFR inhibitor. And extrapolating from some of the data from Will Powell and others in lung cancer, it appears that patients with mutated RAS are exceedingly unlikely to benefit from an EGFR inhibitor. And if we are able to exclude a population of patients from a drug with expense and toxicity where the likelihood of benefit is vanishingly small, what we can wind up doing is enriching the population who does get treated, having a much greater likelihood that it's going to benefit them. And so I think what my take home on the CRYSTAL study is, is that it's highly unlikely that this is going to have a sweeping impact on standard practice. I personally do not use EGFR inhibitors in frontline therapy as a general rule. We can always talk about whether there might be exceptions that might be appropriate on an individualized basis. But as we get smarter in terms of molecular characterization of patients, we may reach a point where we can identify patients in real time where the potential risks will be justified because of the potential benefits. But bear in mind, doesn't look like we're going to be able to separate significant skin toxicity from significant benefit. And that's going to be a relative downside to these treatments. I want to quickly go through a couple other papers. What about the Optimox 2 paper that was presented? Well, there too, another sort of cautionary note and bit of disappointment relative to what we might have expected. Last year, this was presented as essentially a positive study. Now, recognize that it was presented with the caveat that this was planned to be a 600-patient study. And with the commercial availability of bevacizumab, the study was halted in order to pursue other issues as well as for ethical reasons. And what exactly did they look at? Well, they were looking at the question of whether you could give a patient an early planned chemotherapy-free interval. Now, the Optimox 1 study, which I regard as a standard of care-changing study, showed that if you continue chemotherapy all the way through versus if you plan to drop the oxaliplatin from Fulfox after the first three months and then continue with the fluoropyrimidine and leucovorin, would you decrease toxicity and maintain efficacy? And the answer from the Optimox 1 study is yes. And so I regard it as standard practice when I start a patient on Fulfox, I discuss with them right at the outset of therapy that the plan is going to be to stop the oxaliplatin in the range of 12 weeks and continue with the other drugs. And that's really important because if patients understand that that's in your thought processes from the start, they're not going to get scared when three months into therapy you suggest dropping the drug. If you have not put that idea on their radar screen early, when you do suggest it, if you decide to, it's going to shake them up and they're going to wonder what's going on that my doctor wants to change my therapy. So within the context of good doctor-patient communication and a good sense of partnering in the patient's decision process, I think it's really important to put this Optimox strategy on the table early. The Optimox 2 question was, do we need to continue the fluoropyrimidines or can we really give patients a break from us? Can we let them not see our smiling faces every two weeks? Can we let them not have to find parking around where we work? And these are not trivial questions. This would have an enormous, I think, quality of life benefit to patients. Psychologically, not to be tethered to us every couple of weeks would probably be a very nice thing. And so the study set out to address that question. And unfortunately, the answer is that a total chemotherapy-free interval appears to have relative detriment to the patient. And again, we have to be 
careful about overinterpreting the study because it's only 100 patients in each arm. There really aren't good statistical hypotheses for comparisons of the arm. So it's a hypothesis-generating study. But on the basis of it, I think most of us would be comfortable saying planning to stop everybody's chemotherapy at three months and coast is not the optimal idea for all patients. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be done in some very selected cases. And it doesn't comment in my mind on the role of a chemotherapy holiday in someone who's doing very well eight, nine, ten months out who just emotionally or physically is burning out. That's a different story altogether. But it tells us that we should be very careful about dropping all the therapies. It also, I think, tells us that fluoropyrimidines are awfully good chemotherapy drugs and that we can't drop them out too quickly. That some of our newer drugs, such as oxaliplatin or renotecan, we may be able to get away with more modulation there. And I guess the current version of this would be full Fox Bev that gets modulated down to 5-FU Bev. That's my practice. When I see a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer, I discuss with them the equivalent activity of full Fox and full Fury. I discuss the relative side effect profiles, and we decide together which one is going to be more acceptable to the patient. I emphasize it's not an either or, it's a which one first. I'm finding in my practice we're leaning maybe 55% full Fury, 45% full Fox in that general range. And then whichever one it is, I give with bevacizumab unless there's a significant contraindication, such as a significant wound healing issue, uh, recent history of arterial thrombotic events or things of that nature. Then if I've selected full Fox, I'll tell the patient the plan is going to be to carefully monitor neurotoxicity and plan on dropping the oxaliplatin at 12 weeks at the latest and possibly earlier in somebody that has particularly severe neurotoxicity. And perhaps this is a good time to bring up a point we were discussing earlier, which is a very recent press release that Sanofi put out warning us that in a randomized phase four study that was assessing the use of calcium and magnesium as neuroprotectants, that an early analysis suggests a lower response rate in patients who are receiving the magnesium and calcium. Now, this dismays me but does not surprise me because preclinically there has been evidence for a long time that in the presence of high concentrations of divalent cations that there is less affinity for platinum DNA adduct formation. And for that reason, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have not been using calcium and magnesium as premedications. And in fact, for that same reason, on the 966 study looking at Kpox versus Folfox, we did not permit the use of calcium and magnesium. So I would regard this as an important cautionary note to those that are using this in practice. I'm unconvinced by the data that this is a neuroprotectant and there is a potential downside. The last thing I want to ask you about very briefly was the presentation by Rich Goldberg, 4011, which was a pooled safety and efficacy analysis looking at the effect of performance status on outcomes in first-line treatment of trials of metastatic disease. Yeah, I thought this was a very interesting finding, and though I had the privilege of being co-author, Rich and Dan Sargent really did the serious heavy lifting on this. And what they wanted to do is assess what happens to stage two patients. And this is a very relevant question to doctors in practice because over time, we have tended to exclude ECOG performance status two patients from clinical trials. And that, by the way, confounds some comparisons with historical data because often 
entry criteria were ECOG 0, 1, or 2, and more recently it's been ECOG 0 or 1. So what was done in this study was to take a look at what happened to the patients that were ECOG 2, or at least were called ECOG 2. One of the concerns is that patients who are ECOG 2s on studies are really sort of ECOG 2.9s, and the doctor is perceiving that they're doing the patient a favor by getting them on the study. But what was found was that, yes, as we've always seen, patients with ECOG 2 performance status do significantly worse than patients who start out with a better performance status. But for the patients that were at least ECOG-2 well enough to go on a clinical trial, motivated enough to go on a clinical trial, and so on, that their incremental benefit was significant and was comparable to that which was seen for the patients with better performance status, and that more tolerability and more benefit was seen in the patients that were treated with infusional regimens of 5-FU as opposed to bolus regimens. So it confirms what we've seen time and again, which is bolus 5-FU should really be considered an antiquated way of giving 5-FU. The Europeans have been telling us this for a decade now, and they've been right, and we really should get the bolus regimens out of our lexicon. But also importantly, that we shouldn't be too discouraged at the idea of treating ECOG-2 performance status patients. Now, one of the things that I would caution is a person can be ECOG-2 performance status for a number of different reasons. And the person that has an ECOG-2 performance status because of debilitation from the tumor is someone that I've always regarded as a person that's a very good candidate for aggressive therapy. And it's kind of a Sydney or the Bush kind of situation. You sort of want to dive in and give them their best shot because if they respond, their performance status can improve markedly. That's very different from a person with multiple medical comorbidities. And please note, I'm not considering age here. A person can be too sick for chemotherapy and be 20 years old, and I have a person doing wonderfully on fulfurian bevacizumab who had his 91st birthday during chemotherapy. So I don't look at chronologic age. I look at how physically fit the individual is. A person with medical comorbidities that's making them poor performance status that isn't likely to benefit in terms of the performance status if they get some modest response to chemotherapy, I'm a little more careful about and a little more gentle with with chemotherapy.